Hlu, Kai, Hlu, Hedran, Hlu. What's this tower all Listening to What's This Dao All About? A lighthearted look at Taoism featuring Dr. Carl Totten and Todd Perry. Carl is the founder of the Taoist Institute in North Hollywood, California. Todd Perry knows a little about Taoism and is mainly here because he owns a few microphones. Now, let's learn What's This Dao All About? Everybody and welcome back to What's This Dow All About? My name is Todd Perry. Here with me is the great Dr. Carl Totten. As always, great to be here. And uh, we have a very special episode today where we have with us uh, Benjamin Hoff. Uh, you guys all know him uh, from his work that we've discussed on this show many times before, the Dow, the Dow of Pooh and the Day of Piglet. And now he's back to uh, talk, talk to us about his new book, The Eternal Dao De Ching. The philosophical masterwork and its relevance today. So, with that, Benjamin, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. Glad to be on. So, uh, just to start things off, what inspired you to get back into writing about Taoism and to uh, create this book? Well, <laughs> frankly, every question you'll ask is a kind of a tricky one to answer, but um, in a way, the whole thing started when I was a kid prowling around in the forest across from where I lived. Uh, but that's a little esoteric. Um, I came across a book by Dr. Yi Wu, um, his translation of the Tao Te Ching, and that was about 10 years ago, and that inspired me to think about doing the same thing myself. I had really already amassed a huge collection of Tao Te Chings in Chinese and English, and somehow that did the trick, and I started writing it, it was about seven years ago. No. And... Um, then I immediately found out it was going to be a lot more difficult than I had thought. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, what was your kind of go-to translation before you began your own? Like, was, did you have a specific favorite, or was there different flavors from each one that you enjoyed? Well, both. Um, although my first contact with the Tao Te Ching was in 1972 at the University of Washington Bookstore, where I came across a copy by... Jafu Fung and Jane English, big paperback with black and white photographs. Oh, yeah. And the photographs impressed me, so I bought the book. <laughs> and that, I still think, is my favorite up to the time that I've been working on this thing and finding out that the characters mean something very different from what they came up with. But that was the, uh, the one that impressed me the most. Yes, I was going to say, Jane English's uh, photography is masterful, beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah. She was on our show um, oh. about six months ago. We had her, and she was uh, she was a lot of fun. That she has a lot of energy, <laughs> you know. So I guess let's just uh, get right into the your translation of the book. Forgive me here, but it, it's kind of like you know they say like the medium is the message. In, in your book, it seems that the kind of brushstrokes and the method of copying ends up really dictating what a lot of us think incorrectly about the Tao Te Ching and that you you were able to un, you know get get to it on a deeper level through understanding the brushstrokes, right? Uh yeah. Yeah, the 
the brush character meanings resulted in my not understanding at least half of what the Tao Te Ching was saying. I'd come across a sentence that made sense and then a sentence that was just gibberish. And it, it, and it also scatterbrained. The whole thing was scatterbrained. But when I found out, when I really did do some research into the ancient characters that were in use when the book was, or it's not a book, when the work was actually written, then my understanding began to clear up, you know. Why do you think it is that you're the first person to have kind of dug that deeply into that aspect of it? Like, how did every, why did everybody else miss that point? Well, that's what I've been asking myself ever since I discovered that the ancient characters had different meanings from the more modern brush-written characters. I haven't figured it out yet. I mean, um, a lot of the people who have translated the Tao Te Ching have been professional scholars, um, a lot of credentials, long list of credentials and all that stuff, and yet um, they didn't do what I did, and I, I, <laughs> if somebody can come up with an answer, I appreciate it, but I can't come up with one. It's almost like the answer comes from, you know, basic Taoist teachings uh, themselves, that the educated and everything can miss seeing the whole picture, right? And that... Yeah, I guess so. You know, it might help if I were to, to just give a brief synopsis of the evolution of the characters. Yeah. Um because a lot of people, including myself until recently, just don't know about this stuff. But about the time when the work that was later known as the Tao Te Ching was written, it was written on bamboo strips, like everything else of the, of the era, using what I call a writing tube, which was like a forerunner of the uh, felt-tip marker. Mm -hmm. it, could, it could write in thin lines, it could write in circles and curves, it could do all kinds of things, and it made pictures. So the the... Chinese language started out as a pict purely pictographic language, rather like Egyptian hieroglyphs, only not looking like Egyptian hieroglyphs. Yeah. And then um, about 300 years or more, I can't remember exactly, I'd have to look it up, after the Tao Te Ching was apparently written, then the writing brush was developed, and someone, sometime after that, someone got the idea of using the writing brush on paper instead of silk. And after that, the meanings changed like crazy. Um, for instance, um, there's, well, let me, um, maybe I could give an example that um, all of us are familiar with, more or less, yeah. to switch over to Elizabethan England and Shakespeare's writing of Romeo and Juliet. The banquet scene, we all know, the banquet scene, uh, the balcony scene, not yeah. the banquet scene, the balcony <laughs> scene. Everybody knows that as the very romantic thing and all that stuff. Uh, but Shakespeare Minute is more than that. And the real interpretation of that relies on one word. And in the script, it says, Juliet, who's out in the balcony, and looking down at Romeo, says, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And people over the ages since then have interpreted wherefore as meaning where are yeah, like, where are you, Romeo? Yeah. Which is nonsense, because he's right there looking at her and talking to her. <laughs> right. So in Elizabethan English, wherefore meant why. And she goes on to voice her frustration. Why was he born into her father's enemy's sworn clan? And why, in its midst of this warfare between the clans, those two fall in love, etc., etc.? She's voicing her frustration. Uh, a rose under any other name would smell just as sweet. You know, why couldn't he have been born with some other family name and so on? So it's a, like a frustration scene 
and uh, foreshadowing that Shakespeare does very well in that scene. He foreshadows what's going to happen because Juliet knows what's going to happen. She sees what's coming. But Romeo's going on and on about the sun and the moon and the stars. So it's like if one word in an Elizabethan play can distort the um, one scene the way it has over the ages, then think how much distortion there can be from 5,000 Chinese characters, many of which back when the work that Ada Jing was written, ran something completely different from what they mean now. Now, how many, and it's kind of impossible to know, but how many generations of it being copied um, could have potentially happened between what you studied when you got to the kind of the oldest uh, characters? Uh, any idea how many, whether it's three or four times before you got to that version, or is there any way to know? Um. Well, in the 1800s was the first English translation. They were they started. It started out by uh, missionaries and Jesuits translating into English. Um, but the Tao Te Ching is the second most translated book in the world. The Holy Bible being the first, and so who knows how many editions? There are a lot of them that were out of that are out of print now. Um, it's sort of like <laughs> this long, long flow of copies of the Tao Te Ching. So I don't really know. Um, well, to give people an example of this, uh, in the first chapter, you, you really start off swinging here. <laughs> in the first chapter, which you say is in the book is kind of the key to understanding, to, kind of, to unlocking the entire book, you, you say that traditionally in like the Jafu Feng translation, it begins with, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. However, yours begins with, the way that can be followed is not the eternal way. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. So this strikes right at the basic heart that many people, when they talk about Taoism, they say that it's impossible to put into words. Um, do you still believe that that's a sentiment of, of the work, or, or not so much after you translated it? Uh, well, the traditional, I call traditional, translation, the way that can be told is not the eternal way, really comes from uh, Wang Bi, the scholar of the, um, whatever he was, dynasty, yeah. <laughs> can't remember at the moment, but fairly recent, and his interpretation said that the way that can be described is not the eternal way, and that evolved in the way that can be told. Um, it's, you know, you picked the most tricky chapter to explain in the whole book. <laughs> and so in order to really answer that question, I have to go over Wang Bi's interpretation and so on, um, which I don't think we have time for. <laughs> okay, no problem. Uh, but I, it, the, the great thing is, though, once, you know, once I picked up the book and I started there, I said, oh, wow, that was a bold move. Uh, do you think that there's going to be any kind of controversy stirred by your book? Because there are many different, uh, your, your translation changes a lot of the way that people would approach the Tao Te Ching. Yeah, I'm sure there would be controversy, but I think maybe the most controversial thing is that I claim that the author was not the old master. He was not Lao Tzu. He was a young nobleman. I think he was the son of a reigning prince. And I go by clues in the text that would indicate that. I point out clues in the text. Of course, those clues didn't exist until I translated things using the ancient meanings of the characters. Um, but I can't imagine 
the, the uproar, if you want to call it that, that would happen in Taoist religion, because the Taoist religion, not the Taoist philosophy, which is what I deal with, but the Taoist religion centers around Master Lao, Supreme Master Lao, and all that. And all of a sudden, there's no Master Lao. He was a pen name. Yeah. So I, I shudder to think what that's going to do, but <laughs> I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of controversy once people read my chapter notes and explain how I did this and why I did it. If they do that, and I hope they do, because that's the only way they're going to make sense of what I've done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's almost like if you ran into a Catholic church and said, uh, oh, by the way, Jesus Christ was a pen name for uh, some some guy hanging out. Th that is one of the, 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 the great parts of the book, is it's almost like a procedural, like you're watching a, a, a detective show, is that, you know, just by small turns of phrases, you... you start showing the perspective of the writer. Um, and it was something that I'd never gleaned off of any other translation. Yeah, one of my favorite things about this book project was it was a detective story and I was in it. <laughs> <laughs> I was the guy who was translating the stuff and all of a sudden these clues started popping up, starting with chapter 20, I think. I mean, I think there's nothing really before then. Um, and then leading on through chapter 70, and he's saying in various chapters that his way is not the way of his father's. Um, now, it, the translation of that character into the way of his father's was something that I dug out of the ancient meanings of the character, you know, which no one would have known who hadn't done that. So all these new clues started coming up. And the funny thing is, there's a little bit of a hint at first in chapter 20 and then more later on and more later on and more later on and more later on and then at, by the time I got to chapter through chapter 70 I knew perfectly well that this was not an old man but the funny thing is going back to the University of Washington bookstore in 1972 I read the book the Jia Fufeng Jane English version and I knew right away this was not the work of an old man it didn't really like the work of an old man wow. but I didn't know anything more than that it's like that that was the first hint of it and, yeah. It, it, and, and what a time for you to realize that as a young man, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, did, it wasn't anything I was going to do anything with. I just thought, this is not the writing of an old man. There's too much fire and impatience and, and so on in there. And so when you first kind of, kind of came across the, the hints in the translation of who the writer might be, did you have any kind of internal fight over that? Or were you just like, oh my God, I just stumbled onto something incredible? Well, it was more like scratching my head and thought, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> um, he's, it, well, let me put it this way. It's a funny way of answering the question, but I, I claim at the end of the book, after I you know, went through all the research and so on, I claim that this book is really a diary. The Tao Te Ching was a diary written by this young nobleman who was trying to hide what he was doing from his warlord-type father. And it's like, um, uh, I don't know how to put this, but it, it, um, getting through the, all the clues, it's rather like if you had a diary from someone you know, from Victorian England, mm -hmm. and you had, let's say two diaries. You had the diary of an English duchess and the diary of an english coach builder 
after you got through reading both diaries, even if their names were not on it and their titles were not given and so on and so forth, you would know very well that one was written by an English noblewoman and one was written by a coach builder, just from the vocabulary, the point of view, the circles of acquaintance, the events they attended. You know, and that's the way it was with this book. I think that's a better way of explaining it than the way I started. You, you just know from the writing who this guy is. You don't know his name, address, and phone number. Yeah. But, you know, that he was a nobleman and he was young and he was objecting to a lot of the stuff his father and, and clan were doing, which was going over to neighboring states and raiding them and trying to annex their, their state. So um, he was a very different sort of personality. Yeah. He was for peace, not fighting. He was for nature and not obliterating nature in this bat in these battles. You know, so it's it's like my perspective on the Tao Te Ching was completely changed by what I was coming up with, and it did startle me at first. And um, but after a while, it made sense. <laughs> I mean, it's a what a amazing tale of a hero's journey. Is uh, if you have you know the the son of somebody who's in a lot of power who's rebelling against them in secret, and I almost wish, you know, it almost feels like the continuation of it never happens because you you postulate in the book that uh, he may have died at a young age, right? So oh. you you don't get to see the other half of this when this person is developing their rebellious sentiment and then what could have happened after that what kind of action could have happened you know to that um whether this person would have came to political power and what would have happened to them you know mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah it seems it's yeah. one of those one of those sayings that illustrate you know what is that expression or poem the status words of tongue and pen are these it might have been you know <laughs> He could he could have easily outrivaled Confucius because you know the Confucians were coming up with their approach to life and the Taoists um, after the Tao Te Ching was out there were coming up with theirs. If if he had lived, who knows what he might have accomplished? Yeah, a lot of your book does a really good job of putting that in context of the fact that the the writer is talking about the kind of authoritarian, oppressive Confucian ways. And I think normally, just normally going through the Tao Te Ching, I wouldn't normally see things from that perspective in all of the chapters. But your book does a really good job of pointing out specifically what the author is rebelling against. Oh, yeah, thanks. That's because, of, again, the ancient character meanings. I didn't realize how anti-Confucian most of the book is, really. But the funny thing is, in opposing Confucianism, he lets us know what his point of view is, and he lets us know what an alternative solution would be for this or that situation. In chapter 30, I thought one thing that really stood out to me was that you specifically say that the author is not advocating against force, but is actually advocating against violence in general. And most translations I had read don't go as far as to say Taoism is a completely pacifistic philosophy, more something that you'd use violence as a last resort. I believe in your translation, it goes a step further and advocates for pacifism. Am I reading that right? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure I'd label it pacifism. I mean, I think personally he was probably involved with warfare himself because of his inner knowledge of tactics and so on and so forth. And that's another thing that the ancient meanings brought out. 
Um, so I'm not sure I call him a pacifist, but he's certainly different from his family. If I'm, you know, interpreting all these clues right, hmm. um, he. The question is, how involved is he in this? You know, these constant battles because this was the Warring States period, and somehow his story kind of reminds me of King Tut, who died at 18, and there were pictures of him riding at his war chariot with his bow and arrows and stuff like that. And I, I can't help but sort of think that maybe he was in that sort of bag, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's just my impression somehow. But the interesting thing about um, Chapter 30 is it gives a clue about where he might have lived. I can't oh, imagine, yeah. um, you know, I mean, he... he he says, when a great army passes, a lean year surely follows. Well, where could he have seen the great armies passing? And that is the Central Plains, most likely. So maybe he lived someplace that could look down on the Central Plains and see all this action. There's things like that that sort of intrigue me all the way through the book. Yeah, that was... Yeah, so with the Central Plains, basically, I guess, given how they're set up, which is, that's how an army would come through, because they'd obviously avoid the mountainous regions. Um, that's a, that's a great deduction there. Um, there was... And that's where most of the battles were taking place, anyway. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a fun quirk that I, I found in the book that I liked that kind of made me rethink how I think of day, or I guess duh would be the appropriate way to say it, is that you refer to day, which is most normally we would call it like virtue in action, uh, you, you refer to it as soul, as jazz musicians would say. And I just love that idea of that kind of really uh, clear way and culturally relevant way of, of seeing it as soul. And I thought that really connected with me. Mm, yeah, thanks. Um, well, that just came to me. I mean, watching a great saxophone player, you know, he's more than just a musician playing notes. I mean, there's something, some real power in there. And it's known as soul. It's indescribable, indefinable, but it's there and you can see it. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Now, which which saxophone player was this? Was it... Oh, any saxophone player. My favorite is Stan Getz, but Lester Young, who started the cool school of sax playing, for right. instance. Get, Completely get, different approach. Getz a go go is a, a big big play at uh, family gatherings in my house. <laughs> so, oh, huh. So it's always nice, like during dinner, you know. We'll be back to our incredible interview with Benjamin Hoff in just a moment. But I wanted to let everybody know that I, Todd Perry, have a new podcast that comes out every Saturday called Upworthy Weekly with my co-host, Allison Rosen. Allison is the host of Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend, one of the most popular comedy podcasts ever. And uh, she was also on the Adam Carolla Show for four years. And during that time, it won the Guinness World Record for the most podcast downloads of all time. So, I mean, Allison is just wonderful, and working with her has just been so much fun. Um, so what we do is, Upworthy is one of the most popular good news sites on social media. And on Upworthy Weekly, we examine the most popular stories of the week. And mostly it just sounds like two friends making jokes and talking about current events. Uh, here's a small taste of what we do. Uh, Guy Fieri. Ooh. Kristen Stewart was on Howard Stern the other day, and she was saying that she might want him to officiate her wedding. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, that's fun. And I'm sure maybe maybe cater it too, you know? She can get married in Flavortown. Okay. Um, <laughs> Is that what it says on the wedding a... certificate? 
right? It's just kind of like my ceremony will take place at uh, fourteen hundred hours in Flavortown. And so that's Upworthy Weekly, available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, for those of you who would like to support our show, What's This Dow All About, and get some incredible exclusive content, then you can join our Patreon page. At Patreon, you'll get access to nine episodes of The 10,000 Things, a podcast which expands on ideas discussed on this show while exploring new ideas of philosophy, psychology, and culture. You'll hear full, you know, 30, 40-minute episodes on The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, Strange Religions, that's kind of like a funny one where we goof off a bit, uh, Dr. Totten and I's favorite film, uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, you'll get some of um, Dr. Uh, full show on Dr. Totten's ideas about karmic cleansing, uh, there's also a whole show on the Hawaiian spiritual practice of Ho'oponopono. You're going to learn about the Monroe Institute and Journeys Out of the Body. And we go over the politics of experience by R.D. Lang, one of Dr. Totten's favorite books on psychology. There's also more of our interview with Jane English, you know, uh, from one of the most popular uh, Taoist translations of all time. And we have a show on Escape from Freedom, a book that Dr. Totten recommends everybody read. And it's basically about uh, humans and their relationship to authority with a little bit of a focus on World War II. So if you can see, we go into so many different areas on this show, and it was so much fun to record. And at Patreon, you get nine episodes of it. And here's a quick clip of our 2001 A Space Odyssey show, just for a little taste. The monolith suddenly shows up, <laughs> yeah. and, and then the next thing you know, you know, you see this star child, this embryonic child in a bubble floating through space in orbit around the Earth, and I, you know, at that point, I just lost it. <laughs> you know, when I saw right. it in back in '68 at the Cinerama Dome, I mean, I and everyone else in the theater was just like. Whoa, <laughs> what was that, <laughs> you know? I mean, you knew you'd been through something extraordinary, but you weren't quite sure what. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah you went on a journey. What a long, strange trip it's been, you know? In fact, they used to refer to it, you know, writers at the, at the time as they'd call the film The Ultimate Trip. In addition to all that, you're going to get monthly podcasts from me on Taoism called The Tao of Todd. And it's kind of like an audio blog where I just go over some ideas I'm thinking about. And the other day, I just posted a long-form review of the book we talk about today, Benjamin Hoff's Eternal Tao Te Ching. And I do like a, I think it's like 17-minute long breakdown of the most popular, uh, maybe not popular, some of the most uh, maybe controversial parts and um, the, the highlights of the book. So you really need to hear that in addition to this interview we're doing today. So uh, that's about it. To get started for just $5.99 a month, you can cancel anytime. You go to patreon.com slash what's this Dow all about. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what's this Dow all about. And I know you're going to love the content we have there if you love this show. Thanks a lot. And back to our interview with Benjamin Hoff. There were some passages in the book where it reminded me a little bit of the day of Piglet, uh, when you take the opportunity to sound off on some of the biggest issues we're facing in the world. Like, you know, a lot of the book goes through, you know, this is the translation, this is what I'm gleaning off it. And then sometimes you take the time to really connect it to everyday reality. 
that we're dealing with now in ways that, you know, we haven't followed the Tao Te Ching. And so we end up living during an environmental crisis. And you talk a lot about water and the importance of trees. And you really connect the modern day stuff we're dealing with to the Tao Te Ching from all those years ago. Uh-huh. And yeah, yeah. Um, especially chapter 41's notes, because um, in the Tao Te Ching, as I interpreted it, um, I got a thing in front of me, the way is hidden without a name, only that nameless one kindly lends itself to all, while however remaining perfectly whole, complete. In other words, the way is in everything, every tree, every blade of grass, everything. And yet very few people in our society see things that way you know these are just things this the environment it's a backdrop it's nothing but according to the Tao Te Ching it's no such thing it's it, the ways and everything yeah so I I led from that into um, you know a rather I think obvious solution to so-called global warming which even though it's obvious hasn't seen been seen by many people apparently so I put it in there yeah, definitely. The the importance of trees to capture all of this uh, carbon that we're throwing in the air. Um, you also talk about how modern day America has a yang imbalance. Um, yeah, it's like a it's like a sick patient. I mean, I've dealt with acupuncturists, and their approach would be to if you got too much yang, and then you bring in the yin, or vice versa. You know, if too you're too sluggish, then you get some yang energy. But our society is obviously. <laughs> way, way over on the yang side. And in Taoist philosophy, if you take anything to extreme, sooner or later turns into its opposite. And I'm not sure what the opposite of our society would be, but it kind of frightens me to think about it. And it's like, um, it, I don't, you know, every day on the news, there's more shootings, there's more this, there's more that. And I think, oh my God, you know, more yang coming out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How, do we, how do we balance that out? How do, how do we get more yin flowing through the country how, how would we do that you know uh, like culturally well, where does one start culturally and something like that i know that's a bit beyond the scope of your book but yeah in a way it is in a way it isn't i mean um i'd say a one would great way to read the Tao Te jing preferably in a way that makes sense meaning when the characters are saying what the ancient characters meant <laughs> or whatever but um you know the religions or philosophies of the east and Taoism is one of them, actually two of them, Taoist philosophy and Taoist religion, you know, um, counteract all this violence and um, having to do something, you know, do, 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 with charging up the batteries, which is like meditation or just being calm about things. If two people are calm about things, they're not going to get into a fight. But you, in our days, in our society today, any two people are likely to get into a fight. There's just too much yang, too much doing, too much activity. And so to counterbalance that, you can do things like Taoist yoga or any other kind of yoga. Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy, Zen, Taoism, they're great ways of doing the, the counteracting business. Yeah, I've, I found that uh, w- one of the things I often say on this show is that Taoism to me feels like the antidote to the Western mind. And... Uh-huh. And that was first, I first realized this, I think, when I first read the Tao Pu when I was like 20 years old. And you were talking about, there's a great part in the book where you talk about the great reward and how we're always chasing the great reward that's right around the corner. And one day, you know, 
<laughs> we think we're going to get it and then everything's going to be great, but uh, it never happens. And we just you know, wind up running around in circles and frustrating ourselves. Um, the Tao Te Ching is, is amazingly contemporary. And that's, that's another thing that struck me. Not only why didn't anybody ever dig into the ancient characters, but why did nobody bring out the connections? I mean, the, war, the Warring States period, when the Tao Te Ching was written, apparently, was uh, by the very title, was a time of warfare and conflict and greed and people wanting to grab this and grab that thinking, of course, they'll be happy now that they have power. They've grabbed a neighboring state, but they're not happy. They're miserable because now they have to guard both the states and so on and so forth. You know, it's amazing how something written 2,400 years ago can be so relevant to what's going on now. We have a nation of warring states. Whether anybody wants to look at it that way or not, we certainly do. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's relevant in many ways, to Dr. Chang, that is. Well, somebody once said, uh, it's really bad if comedy is still funny that's more than 20 years old because it means we haven't learned a lesson yet. You know, like whatever George Carlin is saying in his final stand-up shows 20 years ago, uh, it's still relevant because we haven't learned anything yet as a society. You know, um, a pie in the face is no longer funny, right? Because we've evolved past it. But George Carlin is still completely on point with whatever he's talking about in 2004 because, you know, we haven't, we haven't learned a thing. Now that you've gone through and have this, you know, new, this tran- new translation and obviously a much uh, different way of looking at the Tao Te Ching, is there anything you change in your previous works about Taoism that would reflect the new things, you know, the, what I know now, you know, what, what, would you do things any differently? Yeah. That's something I've been asking myself lately. I've taken back the U.S. copyright for the Tao of Pooh, and I intend to, well, I'm going to be shopping it around, my agent is, um, but I want to change the quotations from the Tao Te Ching, according to what I know now. Also, it changed a number of other things. There have just been some <laughs> rather embarrassing mistakes in that book, and um, since I didn't even, I generally don't read my book after I've written it, whatever the book is. The Tao of Pooh is no exception. Um, so only recently have I discovered, whoops, that's in there. I don't <laughs> think that ought to be in there. And so I want to do that, and I want to get the rights back to the Day of Piglet, and it needs to be shorter, um, stuff in there that doesn't belong there, and I want to get rid of it. So, yeah, it's funny how this book has made me reevaluate the first two books. Maybe the Tao Te Ching was actually written by Tigger, who was a young uh, upstart. Um, well, there's, you know, there's a certain amount of humor in the Tao Te Ching, if you know what I mean, if you've read my book, um, oh, yeah. that the scholars haven't brought out, and partly because there's no, I mean, without the ancient character meanings, that comedy gets sort of lost, but also because scholars, generally speaking, if I may say so, we're not the most funny people I've ever met, <laughs> and so they don't necessarily pick up on that sense of humor, but it is there. Uh, would you ever think about doing something similar with the Changsa? Um... I thought about it. <laughs> Speaking of humor, right? Like the humor. And, and that's it, all know. I've done is think about it. Mm. Yeah, there, there are a couple, yeah, there are especially some, what do you call it, some parts of uh, Master Zhuang's writing that I'd really love to redo. I mean, re, um, redo, translate. <laughs> Clarify. You know, see what I come up with. Um, <clears throat> but um, so far, that seems like an awful lot of work. <laughs> right. Well, it was se- another seven years, right? Uh, maybe more than that. 
so, but with with Changsa, would it would it be because like that that comes out about three hundred years later? You'd probably still run into the same problems of you know the characters not being in alignment with the translation. I'd assume. I really don't know what I'll run into. I mean, what I would run into if I were taking that book on. I'm at this point thinking I better not. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who knows when we're going to figure out who Changsa was? You might scare everybody again. Yeah, well, there has been quite a bit of documentation about who he was and how long he taught. The only question is, did he actually write all of his stuff? Because his supposedly his um, students or followers wrote a good deal of what's known as the Zhuangzi, the Master Chuang's um, book. Mm. Another thing, obviously, it's a big conversation point in your book, is that you've thrown out five chapters of the Tao Te Ching because you believe that they weren't written by the the person posing as the old master. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I had ought to, at this point, emphasize to anybody who's listening <laughs> that I explain all that stuff in the chapter notes at the end of the book. And um, the style... The point of view, the vocabulary, all these things are, I took into consideration, and for various reasons that I stayed in each of those chapter notes, um, it's clear that, it's clear to me, after all that research, etc., that these were not written by the author of the Tao Te Ching. They must have been inserted pretty early in the history of the passing on of the Tao Te Ching. So, and I also might mention that copyists back back when the Tao Te Ching was written, there were no printing presses, and there hadn't, been, there weren't any printing presses in China for a long time, and then China, in effect, invented the printing press, but it was a different concept than Gutenberg's. Um, anyway, the copyists had to copy by hand each each you know, edition of the Tao Te Ching that would get passed on, and there are a lot of those copyists who made some pretty obvious mistakes, and some of them not so obvious, and those things I did my best to clear up too and those are in the chapter notes as well is there anything that still mystifies you about this work um after you know digging deep and getting really close to the translations and uh, spending so much time with it are there's still things that mystify you about Taoism? Mm, not so much mystifying but intriguing like um at the end of toward the end of the book i bring up the idea that the author is in some royal tomb in China, mm. and therefore, maybe there's an original Tao Te Ching, or what it would have, he would have called it. Um, that intrigues me, and until that's done, until the original is found, until the identity of the author is established, that's going to be a big mystery to me, a big question mark, you know. Uh, maybe I'm right about him, maybe I'm wrong, but um, I really wish that somebody would go do something about that <laughs> <laughs> if if you are right that's a hell of a right you know um that's obviously fundamentally world-changing you know yeah it's i stick my neck way out on I, the other hand i think anybody who reads my chapter notes will see why i'm sticking it out no so the, the, the big thing is will they read the chapter notes <laughs> Right, it it doesn't just become a headline. This guy threw out this this self important uh-huh. guy threw out five things. He says it's a different person, and you you seem like a kook. But the thing is, as as the saying goes, you showed your work. You know, it's right here on the page exactly how you translated it. You rationalize, you know, the, how you rationalize every big decision you've made. 
So it, I think it would be very difficult for somebody to come at you and say otherwise, you know? Well, yeah, at, at the beginning of all this business, um, I thought I'm going to have to put in my chapter notes how and why I did this, because otherwise I knew perfectly well what would happen. The scholars would say, this is absolute garbage. This guy has just come up with his own view of things, and he's trying to pass it off as the authentic Tao Te Ching, et cetera, et cetera. So I was going to have to do some self-defense, and that's that inspired me to write the chapter notes, um, because I, <laughs> I think in the Asian studies field with all the bickering and backstabbing and stuff that goes on, rather like the scientific community and scientific journals, if you ever read scientific journals, as soon as someone comes up with a new idea, they attack it. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you showed your work here, and I, I was thinking, uh, obviously, I'm not here to tell you what to do, but what would be cool is if you had this translation of this book, and then right next to it, instead of the messages being interwoven with the translation, just the pure messages, um, for maybe somebody that's a little more, uh, that doesn't want to get so scholarly into it, but just wants to understand what's happening. And now, being that you've done that work, I feel like you're the only person who can authentically comment on it uh, within like the sidebars, like, like Derek Lynn's translation has a really nice sidebars where they explain everything. Um, yeah, you know what? It's, that's a good, good idea, a good suggestion. I just plain didn't think of it, but I see what you mean. It would be a good idea. You know, version two or whatever, you know, you got to do that. Or um, you do like a workbook sort of thing with sidebar business on the right-hand side and the, and the text on the left-hand side. Right, yeah. Derek Lynn's version does a really good job at that, and I steal from him all the time on the show when trying to come up with ideas or trying to explain what the heck something means. Um, let's see here. Oh, you know, one of the big things in your book, much like the uh, Jafu Fang Jane English version is the incredible photography. If I read things right, you did it all with analog film. This isn't digital. Mm-hmm. With Kodak, yeah. did you do it with Kodachrome? Yeah, yeah. Kodachrome and I were made for each other. I was really <laughs> upset when it was discontinued. Uh, but yeah, it is all Kodachrome images, uncropped, unmanipulated, plain old Kodachrome, which is gorgeous stuff. I mean, it's, it's, you know, National Geographic used to require all their photographers to use Kodachrome. It's what Ge- National Geographic photos are famous for. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was a, it was the ideal combination as far as I was concerned. And then it just f- faded away because everyone's using digital or? Uh, yeah, but there was also, ironically, some environmental concerns that the Kodak was having to face, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's one thing about digital. You don't have to poison the, the water with uh, photochemicals. You know? Right. But um, on the other hand, I have all these um, Kodachrome images, so I thought, why not? And the funny thing is that I had an agent, uh, not my present agent, who sent the book out as a text, and he said, by the way, there are some photographs available to illustrate some of the pages if you want them. Nobody bid on that. Um, the book was turned down in manuscript form uh, without without the photographs or maybe with two or three that he sent along. Uh, it was turned down by about 40 publishing houses. Wow. And then I hired another agent <laughs> <laughs> who specialized in photographs. He'd, he'd work with Sierra Club books and stuff like that. 
so he marketed as a photo book with text rather than a text with photographs and immediately abrams which is a fantastic publisher i think the best out for out there for uh, photo books immediately they said we got to do this book so and that's a little sidebar in itself you know <laughs> the, the pictures sold the book it's like Here's a book that completely upends one of the most important philosophies in world history. Eh. But those are some great photos, so let's put the book out, right? Um, yeah, of course, I got that idea from Jane English. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So is there anything else you'd like to add uh, to our discussion, anything that we've missed in talking about your phenomenal book and, and reasons why everybody listening should go out and get it and go into, was it going to abrams.com is the best place to get it or can they um, Amazon? There are a number of, well, they can go to my website and I list, um, there's a, you know, click on this and you'll know how to order the book. Um, Abrams, uh, you can order it from them um, or Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a fairly long list on my website yeah. of places to order it from. Yeah, it's depend on you know which one's best for you, you know. Um, yeah, so is there anything we've missed in this discussion uh, from the book that you'd like to make sure that our listeners uh, know about? Well, not that I can think of. Um, on the other hand, there's probably a whole lot of stuff, and there's in a nagging doubt in my mind that I've covered everything in the book too. I mean, I'm probably missed something, at least something. <laughs> well, in we, writing the book, we want to give them a reason to buy it too, you know. Um, well, so I and I will, uh, and and again, if any time in the future uh, there's more you want to talk about or whatever, and come on our show, we'd love to have you back. This has been just a, a wonderful conversation. Um, yeah. I the funny thing is, so we've talked before. I think about three years ago, I wrote you a letter and you called me and you were explaining everything that was in this book, and I was furiously taking notes the whole time because I was like, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Um, I've got the guy who wrote the book that changed my life on the phone, and he's telling me he just figured out who actually wrote the Tao Te Ching. And so I, I was kind of, I was, wow, you know, this is like the greatest moment ever. But it also happened to be Mother's Day. So you're talking to me on the phone, and you're giving me all this incredible information, and I'm just over the moon, and I'm trying to write it all down. And then in the other room, my wife's sitting there like, oh, we're supposed to go to dinner. You know, and I was sitting there like, okay, so how long can I talk on the phone with Benjamin Hoff here until my wife files for divorce? So I have to figure out that exact <laughs> minute to get off the phone. Um, and I'm kind of like, a couple times I wrote a little note. I'm like, I can't believe what I'm hearing right now. You're going to have to give me another half an hour. But I think we must have talked for about an hour and 20 minutes. And it was, it was one of the most wonderful experiences uh, that I've had being involved with this show and Taoism and everything. So I just want to let you know what was going on in the background while we were talking. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Mr. Hoff. It's been great talking to you. And again, if any time in the future you'd like to come back on the show, we'll have you every time. Okay, great. That's great. Thanks a lot. Thank you.